What's your name? My name is Kalen Budman. What is your current job and how long have you held it? Uh, I am currently, I'm one of the owners of Baseballism and I am the chief logistics officer. And I have been doing this since the end of 2012, early 2013, full time since 2014. How many times have you jumped out of an airplane? I think I've jumped out about 20 times. Before your current job, what type of attorney were you? Uh, so I did a number of things. I was in the army. Uh, my last job before where I'm at now, I was in the office of general counsel at the national security agency. So uh, an intelligence agency. And before that, I was a legal advisor uh, in a special forces unit in the army. And then before that, I was a legal advisor in the 82nd airborne. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Kalen Budman. He's one of the co-founders of Baseballism. That is a baseball lifestyle company that was started by four former baseball teammates. Baseball is America's pastime. As you are about to find out, Baseballism is the ultimate American entrepreneurial story. Kalen Budman is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Kalen, uh, thanks so much for joining me. I am a huge fan of baseballism, and I'm really excited to learn more about this company. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I have bought uh, three different shirts. I have the, uh, the microphone that has Vin's name up along the side. Yeah. I have the uh, Going, Going, Gone shirt that I'm wearing now that you can see that our audience can't see. But I will explain to them that the O in Going is a baseball and then in the second going, that baseball is halfway gone. And then in the word gone, that baseball has completely disappeared. I also have a pair of um, scorekeeping socks that I'm wearing. I used to have a cell phone case before I got a new cell phone. And, uh, and I feel like whenever you see somebody who's wearing baseballism clothes, there's just like this nod that you give to you. Just, it's like a little head nod because it's just like you're in the know. Yep, Absolutely. I also used to have this six plus four plus three equals two shirt. I don't think I'm ever going to get it back. It's at an ex-girlfriend's. And out of all of the different pieces of baseball is a merchandise, that might be my favorite because it makes people so confused and it makes math teachers really upset unless they understand baseball scorekeeping. So that is our uh, number one selling item of all time. And exactly for the reason reasons that you've listed, if you get it, you get it. And if other people get it, you know that you have something pretty serious in common and it drives other just people nuts. We put it in the window of every store because you walk by and if you get it, you're like, what is going on with this store? And if you don't get it, you probably look at it a couple of times, circle around and come back. And the number of math teachers who come in and complained about it 
and then bought it afterwards, I mean, it's, it's pretty substantial. I think that 95% of the people who listen to this podcast understand what it means. But for the other 5%, when you're keeping score of a baseball game, each position on the diamond has a number to indicate that position. Shortstop is six, second base is four, first base is three. So if you turn a double play that goes shortstop to second baseman to first baseman, it is six, four, three, and that is a double play, which means two outs. And so what, if that's the most successful, what is the second most favored or successful out of all the slogans that you guys have? The, all the slogans, uh, you know, um, the live life like a 3-1 count is one of our earlier ones from a slogan standpoint that um, really has just done well consistently because it, it, it resonates, you know, and, 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 and it means a lot to a lot of people. And it's probably a little, you know, you still have to really get it. Um, for some people, it's probably a little less challenging to wrap your head around because if you're a baseball person, you can walk yourself into the situation. Um, whereas six, four, three, sometimes you're like, even if you're a baseball person, if you don't get it, you start to try to force it to work and you get real confused. Okay. So let's, let's tell the story about you and your friends. It's Travis Chuck, Jonathan Loomis and Jonathan, is it pronounced J? How do you pronounce the other Jonathan? Uh, last one is Jonathan Jawade. Wade. Okay. So the four of you go to the University of Oregon and this was before the Ducks had a D1 team. And so you guys played club baseball. Is that correct? Yeah, we had, it was interesting. So we were playing against uh, a lot of varsity opponents, um, junior colleges, division three teams. But yeah, it was before they brought back the Pac-12 team. Tell us about you and your, uh, and your, and your now co-founders. Who played what positions? Who was, who was the best? Uh, Was this just to have fun and hang out or how serious was it? No, I mean, it was definitely very serious. I mean, it was very competitive baseball. There, there were guys who were being drafted, you know, even out, out of the, the teams we were competing against. Um, so Travis was third baseman. Uh, I was a second baseman. Uh, John Loomis was, was a catcher. And then uh, Jonathan Joyd was a pitcher. And so the way it kind of works is I'm the oldest. And so I played with Travis and Jonathan Loomis. And then I had left. And then Jonathan Joyd was the, is the youngest. And he played with Travis and Jonathan uh, Loomis. Um, Travis is the best. I'm Travis is real. Travis is, is an incredible baseball player. I, I mean, you know, competed at, at, at a high level against the teams they were playing against, but could compete on a high level, you know, uh, in, in any competition, you know, he came from a, a powerhouse high school, you know, he would play college collegiate summer leagues with D one kids. I mean, he, he, he's very legit. I mean, they, not to take away from anyone else because uh, Jonathan joy and, and, and John Loomis are also very good baseball players, but Travis is Travis is kind of a freak. And he's, 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 a, he's an athlete. What would be the uniforms for the Ducks club baseball team? Uh, at that time, uh, so we were, a, we were still a Nike program for most of it. So we had, we were fully kitted out in Nike. Um, before that, there was, a, there was a baseball brand in the Northwest that was very, very important for a while. And then especially important in um, women's softball. Uh, and it's called Ringers. So they were our, uh, did our merchandise before that. So once you, so you said that you were the oldest, once you have completed your undergraduate degree and the other guys, the younger ones, they're still there at this point, what are you thinking about what you're going to do with the rest of your life? Uh, man. So I, I, uh, I decided I was going to go to law school. Right. And I didn't actually know any lawyers and I didn't really know why. I just knew that it was kind of a career path. I grew up in a very small town, um, about 90 people just in the middle of the country in Oregon. And so it was mostly loggers and, farmers and I knew I wasn't going to do that but I didn't really I didn't really know a lot about careers so um it was just you know I was I did well in school so I, I kind of went that path so 
I left Oregon and I left those guys behind. They were still playing and I went to law school. So you went to the University of Wisconsin at this point, and were you just, and, and as we documented at the beginning, you went on to become a military lawyer, but what was your ultimate thought about what you're going to do uh, as a lawyer? I had no idea. I had no, I didn't even know what a lawyer did. And honestly, part of why I joined the army, because uh, once we got into law school, I was like, I don't, I don't really know that I want to do this, but you know, I don't really know what the next play is and I'm in the middle of it and uh, I'm spending the money. So, uh, We'll finish, right? I think what most people know about military lawyers, including myself, is what they saw in the movie A Few Good Men. What should we know about being a military lawyer that we did not learn in that movie? I, so I had a very unique experience. Um, we were, you know, it was like 2006 when I joined, late 2006. Uh, we were fighting two wars. And we were really, uh, we in the United States was ramping up needs for bodies. So I almost immediately went overseas. And then I just got into a cycle where I was back for a year, probably, you know, really less than a year. I was getting the time back in the States was getting shorter and shorter. And then I would go for a year. Um, so, which was, you know, I had very interesting, unique experiences, but I mean, I don't know that I did a ton of stuff that would be practicing law in the, uh, conventional sense. You know, I prosecuted a few cases, um, uh, which kind of the backbone of being a lawyer in the army, but I did a lot of, a lot of basic army staff work that any other officer from any other branch in the military would do sitting on a staff in Iraq or Afghanistan. Kind of vague, but it was, it was kind of all over the place. Yeah. So I, I, if anything is classified, then, then that's understandable. But, but what kind of details can you give us about some of those really interesting experiences that you had overseas? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, it, we we were doing quite a bit of work uh, when I was in, in during some of my time in Iraq, working with the police force. They, you know, they were trying to. They had very smart judges. The judges in Iraq always were people who went to the best universities around the Middle East, whether it was in Iraq or Egypt or whatever. So they uh, were very advanced. But then when they were rebuilding their police force, they were they had not a ton of educated people. So we were working on a program with them for uh, quite some time about really trying to all the forensics that you see on TV, they had the labs and the systems for it, but, and the judges got it and they were ready to see it in court, but they didn't have police that could actually make a case out of it because they didn't get the science or how to collect evidence or things like that. So working with uh, the local police on, you know, running um, investigations and gathering evidence and understanding DNA, that was a big thing. Uh, you know, during one of my deployments, we were releasing a lot of detainees. So there was a lot of vetting just to ensure that if someone, there was a real reason for someone to remain detained, we had, we had to put, we put real evidence together and kept them. Uh, otherwise they were reintegrating a lot of people back into, um, society there. Uh, I, you know, I, I was, I'd like to believe that I was kind of a trusted agent in that I, uh, I had my critical thinking skills were pretty decent. So I, I had commanders that kind of, you know, like to bounce ideas off me, whether it was in the legal realm or just anything. Uh, I was one more person on a staff that was already always full of smart people anyway. From a language standpoint, how many translators did you have? How critical were they in order to be able to make these high level discussions? Uh, I mean, so for me personally, I always had like my own translator. Um, you know, I, it was great for me. You know, I, you know, we would go to some a judge's place or you'd go to a local general's place or a politician's place. I mean, it was essential to be able to do, to speak the language. Uh, I mean, I, I can only even imagine what uh, 
you know, the guys on the ground, the infantry troops, or when I was with the special forces guys, what the guys on the special forces teams, how much they leaned on their translators. You know, they seemed to have, I mean, they were like brothers um, because they seemed, even though the, they were often trained in, they, the U.S. troops were often trained in the language. I mean, I think you had to have those translators. So like those bonds seemed incredible. I, I, I mean, I always work with great people um, through and through, you know, I know a lot of the translators we had in the different units were able to come to the United States because they weren't safe over there um, because they had worked with you to, you know, us and like, they were just incredible people. I wanted to ask you about um, how, how often you're completely on high alert and how often there would ever be times where you could kind of um, where there was leisure time, whether you're playing baseball or ping pong or whether you're, you know what I mean? Um, how much time was there where you could, I don't want to say let your guard down because you never can, but where you would have some time that you could do some type of leisure activities. I don't know if let your guard, you know, probably oversells where I was at, you know, a guy who's, who's a lawyer is, is going to be generally at the headquarters, which is going to be at a bigger base, which means it's probably more secure and safer. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there's still risks um, and, and attacks and whatnot. It was probably less the let your guard down and more, you know, you're, you deploy for a year and you work seven days a week and I'm pretty, uh, I don't detach super well. Right. So like we were just working 17 hours a day, every day and probably could have taken more downtime, but really what else are you going to do? You know, you're in the middle of nowhere. There's more work than can be done. You know, the commander's working, the infantry guys are working and you know, the, the special forces teams they're working, they're not taking tons of days time off. So you feel kind of bad cause you're already, living a nicer life. So, you know, I didn't do a lot of downtime, right? You know, you call home, um, you watch a movie or two, but you're also not in like the nicest place. There's not a lot of, I never was anywhere with grass, right? So like going out and playing, you know, you've got your workouts in, you know, anybody, you know, you always, if you're a staff guy, you always come back in better shape. Uh, but that's about it. Mentioned at the top, the number of times you've jumped out of an airplane. Um, how many of those times are in the United States and did you ever have to uh, overseas? We jumped, I jumped once in um, Iraq, in uh, outside of Ramadi, uh, or Al-Assad, which is in Anbar province in the west. And what it was, was we, I was assigned to 1st Brigade of the 82nd Airborne, uh, a very famous um, unit. And they were working with local Iraqi troops, and they wanted to get the Iraqis airborne uh, proficient. And so before that, we executed some jumps uh, of our own in the desert. High, a lot of winds in the desert. Yeah. How many, how many, so I, I've gone skydiving once. It was a tandem jump. I loved it. It was fun. I didn't have to do anything. All I had to do was basically not panic uh, and, and smile at the camera that was also um, uh, shooting me. How many times, maybe explain how many times you are uh, practicing on ground, different techniques. How many times you're up in the air with someone before you make your first jump solo? So it's a different kind of jump. Uh, if you're just a regular, you know, airborne qualified in the army, it's a static line, right? So you have a line out of the back of your parachute that's hooked to a, a, the plane or a line on the plane. So it, as you jump out, it pulls your chute for you. Okay. So you don't, it's not, a, there's no free fall. Uh, there is, you know, military free fall. That's a little bit, you know, more like the special forces guys and some other reconnaissance kind of guys um, and girl and, and women as well. Uh, so you always jump by yourself. I mean, you, you know, there's hundreds of people jumping at the same time, but you're not strapped to anyone. You have to go to airborne school. Everyone goes to airborne school, which is, uh, I, remember if I recall correctly, three weeks. And then, you know, before every jump, you go through your refreshers on the ground. You're doing your, your kind of dry land drills before you get up and go in the air. So, I mean, it's, it's a good amount of time. You pr- Cause so you hit the ground 
the shoots are a little different now, but you hit the ground at like 17 miles an hour. So you don't oh. stay on your feet. They don't teach you to land. Your landing is, you know, you, you touch your toes, then your knees and your hips, and then you do a roll, right? So it's teaching you how to hit the ground uh, and not get knocked out or break your back, right? So it's just a different experience. So when you go and do your refresher, it's learn, remembering how to exit the airplane, but then really you're focusing on how to jump, fall, and roll. 17 miles an hour still sounds like an awfully fast amount of speed to be hitting the ground. What, if you don't mind, maybe share your worst landing and how you, but you still walked away from it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know you know, there's probably some military people listening to the show are like 17 is not correct, but it's, I swear that's whatever the number was in the shoots, but it's whatever it was, it's real. Uh, it's a, it's a substantial number. I, um, and I didn't have any terrible ones. I got knocked out once, you know, and I was kind of on my feet you know, and didn't, you know, didn't know. And I couldn't find, you know, you you have to scoop up your parachute and pack it in and do a bag. And then you kind of jog back to the collection site. Right. And I couldn't find my parachute. And then someone was yelling at me because I was spinning around. I was like, what's going on? And it was just strapped to me. You know, I just was just too out of it, but I, I've been lucky and you know, I never broke anything on a fall. I never got, you know, you, you get, sometimes you get dropped, you know, uh, too late and you might, end up on the highway in North Carolina or you end up in a tree and they have to come cut you down. I didn't have, or in the power lines. I didn't have any horror stories. I just, one, not one, one good concussion is all I got. When was your last time overseas? When did you come back to the United States for good? I was last, I was in Afghanistan and we came home in 2012 in, okay. in like um, early in the year, February or March, I think. And around what time do your old college roommates start to discuss this baseball lifestyle company and start to get you involved so first so the the, there the name baseballism actually dates back to 2006 to a baseball camp uh that 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 really travis bought um in conjunction with some other guys from a man who had been running at eugene oregon for years and most most basically bought like if i recall correctly a little bit of gear the name of the camp and then kind of the book of business and they ran that for a few years uh shut it down uh, to go get real jobs. I mean, it, it, you know, it was successful for what it was, but it wasn't, you know, couldn't survive off it, you know, year round. And so Travis was working, uh, training athletes, uh, at an academy in Portland. People would ask him about the baseballism camp shirts. Cause they were really nice camp shirts. That was, that was part of the deal. Cause usually camp shirts are pretty cheesy. And, um, so he did a run, like, I think it was like 40 shirts and so just hung them up in the cages and sold them. And at that point, he's like, man, I have something here. And he reached out to a number of people um, and said, you know, we've got this, I have this thing, but I need help. Who's interested? And uh, so I, I, you know, I was, I think either in Afghanistan or just coming back. And I, I was like, man, I'm in, uh, you know, I can help. Uh, and then we kind of created the four of us. Um, and then we did a Kickstarter is really what we did. And Kickstarter was brand new back then. You had to apply to be on it. There weren't a lot of people. And it was successful and raised enough money to launch a website and kind of took off from there. What, what were some of the initial shirts for baseballism, the, the camp that, that where people just loved the shirt and where it basically triggered the idea? Well, from the camp, the camp so we have the uh, – we, I'm obviously I'm wearing the flag man, which is, you know, a big part of our logo. But then we, the classic logo for us is baseballism between the two lines with the dropped bat. Uh, we call it our classic logo. That was, there's been some, some evolution, but, and it's actually at the bottom of your shirt. Um, that was some form of that was the original logo. 
And that's what really drove people because, you know, baseballism is a pretty cool phrase, right? You know, and like, especially if you, you, you step back and you think about it and you're like, oh, there are kind of a lot of isms in baseball and like it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So people connect it to that. Yeah. W- one thing I will say um, about your shirts that I like is that I've had a lot of friends who make t-shirts for fun, for some party, for some bachelor uh, party or, or, or whatever, especially when I was in college. But the, the actual shirts, they're, 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 it's a heavy cotton. It's, it's, it's thick. It's uncomfortable. It's something that you don't want to wear, especially when it's warm. But the quality of your shirts where you, you can breathe in them, it's just like a good material. And, and I guess my question from, from this compliment is, was that always the case? And how important was the, not just what it said, but how it felt on you? Yeah, I think it was always the case, you know, and, and probably uh, those original conversations were probably more Jonathan Wade and Travis uh, really, really diving into it. But I think that that's what they always wanted. Right. So like, I mean, they wanted to be different. Right. You know, and, and wanted to wear something that they wanted or wanted to make something they wanted to wear. Nobody wants or we don't want to wear a lot of 100 percent heavy cotton shirts. Um, you know, it's something like the cut and, and the feel that we have, you know, it could be your like, quote unquote, going out shirt, you know, like the, you, this is what you want to wear out to a bar. But it's also not like so forward leaning and fashion that if, if you're just the average person doesn't really care about that, that you, you, you that it bothers you and you still are going to say, you know what, this is so this is really comfortable, more comfortable than my other shirt. I mean, I think, you know, it's people are spending their money with us and we're, you know, we're so grateful um, and, and we're so grateful to be part of this community that like we want to be able to provide them the best quality product that, that we can because I mean you know they, they could be spending their money elsewhere you mentioned how when they called you you said that you were in that's still a huge leap of faith I mean you're a lawyer you're a lawyer for the government and the idea of moving back to Portland to start a company is still a um, you know that's a huge leap how long did it take you to decide and what ultimately made you decide that this is something I'm willing to do so well, I think it was probably like that 2012, I was saying I, I was in, I then um, went to, wa- my next assignment was Washington, DC. And I was working for an intelligence agency, I, I said at that point. And um, that's when the Kickstarter happened and things were kind of expanding. I was on the way out from the army anyway. I wanted to start a new career in my you know, career. I wanted to probably come back to Oregon because this is where I'm from. And I was going to kind of maybe take a year off, like go just do whatever I could for a year to pay a little bit of the bills. I had some money saved up. And I knew I was coming home and John Loomis, who is our CFO and charge all the money and finances. I remember he reached out to me one day and he's like, Hey, you know, I know you're coming back. We're starting to get busier. If I could pay you like part-time, would you, would you work part-time for a while till you figure out what the next move is? And I was like, yeah, that's not, that sounds great. Um, love to love to do that. And then by the time, you know, like a month later, he's like calls. He's like, we just need you full time. Like I can pay you, pay you this. And, and it just, and then at that point it just was kind of a no brainer. I came back and um, Travis had left, was teaching um, at a community college. He was teaching like PE and weights and, and sports and stuff. And then Jonathan DeWade was working at a sporting goods company. And we were all at that point transitioning to baseballism full time. Uh, and it was great. And we just, you know, with all of us going from a, a moonlight to full time, we just kind of skyrocketed. Did I read correctly that the first quote store was basically the garage of Travis? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was not present. I mean, I, I was, went to that house just once, so I wasn't present, but I heard that really the, the push to make it something bigger was just that the neighbors were getting sick of, you know, semis dropping off pallets in a garage. But yeah, it was definitely, you know, they had, they were maximizing that space, shipping orders, uh, taking photos. It was, it was tight. 
So you go from a garage and then you had, I believe uh, you, you have a website and then there's a small store in Portland and then it's a bigger store and then multiple stores. What was the, what was the move or what was the next thing that really kind of made you think, Oh my goodness, this thing is, this thing is real. So yeah, we, we went from Travis's garage to a, a store slash headquarters in Portland and it was fine. Right. Like, I mean, it was, it was, we needed the space. Right. So the real big jump was Cooperstown. So Travis, uh, as a coach had taken a 12U team to Cooperstown. And if you're not familiar with Cooperstown, how, how it operates from a baseball standpoint, the Hall of Fame is awesome. It's wonderful. But what really drives the tourism during most of the summer is 12U baseball. There's one complex uh, that hosts 100 teams every week, you know, and it's clockwork. They run the same schedule every week. And then when they're gone, next week, 100 teams come. And then there's another complex that I think has 40 or 50 every week. And then there's two or three more that don't run full summer, but that have a few weeks where they're running 30, 40 teams. So it is just, it is the check the box 12U tournament. Bryce Harper has played there at 12U. You know, you go through so many guys that are young guys in the, in the league now. That was the 12U. Everyone knows you go to Cooperstown. So Travis had taken a team, came back and was like, we need to open a store in Cooperstown. The Jonathan and Travis, they went out there and they found a store and um, they, we opened one in Cooperstown. And then we all went out that summer um, to, I think it was 14, to uh, get it up and running. We had to hire a manager to kind of train the staff. And we, were, we did, you know, we were just different there. Usually it's kind of tchotchkes and, and uh, sports cards and stuff. And people were like, oh, you'll fail. Your t-shirts are too expensive. We're selling $5 t-shirts. And now it's like, we're, you know, we're the best business in that town other than the Hall of Fame and have been for years. But it, it, it really was when we said, this is legit. Because that's a long way from Portland. Mm-hmm. This is probably a good time to ask you about just licensing. You have, you know, the, the Babe Ruth is swinging the American flag. And I know that you've started to venture off into more um, themes that are related to a certain community, but you're not selling Yankees. You're not selling Mariners. You're not selling Rockies. You're selling baseball lifestyle, but, but maybe explain uh, about the licensings that you guys do have to do and how you kind of work with, with whether it's the, the hall of fame itself or just major league baseball in general. Yeah, so um, kind of the, the big picture is, is we are for the whole baseball community, right? So, um, I, you know, I'm a Pirates fan. You know, you might be a Yankees fan. Um, so if, if, if we sell a Yankee shirt, right, it's not going to appeal to me. But if we sell something for the baseball fan, it can bring us all together. And then you have this whole population. Baseball is doing tremendous at the youth level, kind of despite the narratives. It's just it's less of the rec ball and more of the travel ball. It's more serious, but kids are participating in the numbers are very good in, in many facets. Um, those kids might play 200 games a year and not watch one major league game. Right. But baseball is their life and it's their mom, the mom's life and their sister's life and the dad's life. Cause they spend their year traveling around. So there's this huge population of people that are, that are into baseball and we can unite them without doing Yankees gear or pirates gear. It, I mean, that becomes almost more polarizing and a lot of people do that. Right. Um, so, and they do it well. And, and there's, there's, you know, there might be something there for us in, in the future, but from the big picture, that's why we do what we do. But there are some licenses we have, but we kind of feel like they unite that whole kind of universe of baseball people. So the Flagman, Babe Ruth, you know, we wanted something iconic. Uh, a baseball is an Americana situation and, and, you know, Babe Ruth swinging a flag is, is right there. I mean, it's one of the most recognizable swings. It's not the most recognizable sw- swings, you know, uh, people know Babe Ruth you don't have to be a Yankee fan to, you know, to, he, he's still one of the most popular players in Boston. Right. And obviously there's a lot tied to that. Um, 
we have Major League the movie, which is obviously a super popular movie. Field of Dreams, uh, which is you know a lot of people's favorite baseball movie. We actually have a store at the Field of Dreams movie site, um, and it doesn't matter who you root for. You you know you love baseball, you love those things, and we've added a few additional players that we think cross team lines. Roberto Clemente, um, you know, just an incredible player, incredible human being. Uh, matters tremendously uh, in the Puerto Rican community, but, but but many communities, and it just doesn't matter who you root for. Um, and and the, there's kind of this line of, you know, that you stood for something. You stood for many things that are very important. So we kind of have gone that path. Uh, we've added, you know, recently, um, we have Ted Williams as well. So I think it's a, he's in another one where it's like, he had definitely a Red Sox, but there's just something about him that he's bigger than just one team. We have a handful of others that, uh, but these are kind of the big ones. Yeah, I mean, that, the Ted Williams hat, it just says 406. Well, point 406 for, for the year that he hit 406. And, and, I, and I'm from the Bay Area, and so the shirt that, that I'm probably going to get next is the one that just says 1989, and the 19 is the A's colors, and the 89 is the Giants colors. If I can nitpick, I think it should be the other way around because I'm an A's fan of the A's one. Yeah. So I think that the, the green and gold should be on the 89 part. But nonetheless, I think those are just like fun ideas where – what it's just 1989 but because of the colors of the a's and the giants it just it, it just speaks to a bay area baseball fan and what that year meant well do you remember during that series i, I mean i i maybe do, I, i'm old enough to remember during that series there were people who they sold those hats where they were split you know yes. and they had the a, my buddy's dad had one, had the giants on one side and the a's on the other and so like i mean it was during that period of time there was a lot of people torn because it was the bay you know and it was obviously the series got overshadowed by other things but yeah how do the ideas come together, you know, uh, for, for your staff? You know, I have an idea for this next one. What, what's, uh, what's the vetting process to find out if this idea is going to work? So, you know, really the, just, but you talk about the ideas, you, the, the credit has to go to Travis. Um, you know, he's the creative mind. You know, he's, he, you know, we're large on social media. He's the force behind that. He, you know, he's led the creative team since day one. He now has an awesome creative director in Ryan Wantland who had been at Nike was with the Portland Timbers has just a ton of experience and is a baseball person. Um, but, but the, the ideas really come out of them um, early on and still sometimes, you know, we're able to test out some designs on social media before we, we launch them. But right now I think we have, you know, not to say we don't ever miss, but you know, we have a pretty good feel of what, you know, what's going to resonate. Uh, and for that reason, we ensure that we, we stay pretty baseball people here. You know, it doesn't really necessarily matter if you played, right? But it just, you, you have to really care and get it because we need that kind of insight uh, within our team. So they have a, uh, a team now that's grown to four people on the design side and they're just incredible and they just churn out awesome ideas. How often does someone who does not work for baseballism come to you or email an idea that says, hey, I got a theme, I got an idea, and if somebody did, and I swear it's not me, uh, what, do you take those into consideration? I mean, how, how often is every day? Um, no, it's really challenging because, un, you know, unfortunately there's pretty substantial legal uh, issues, right? You know, if we're even reviewing those and someone says, hey, you should do this, you know, and, and often they'll be as generic. It's like, you should do a shirt about home runs, right? So great. You know, like, what does that, I don't know what that shirt looks like, but if we go years down the road, we do a grand slam shirt and someone's like, well, that really came from me. You owe me some cut, you know, like, and, and I not, that hasn't happened to us, but I know those kind of things, you know, Nike and Adidas and other people really have to be super careful. So we, we generally don't, you know, and it's, we have a great design team and there's a lot of great ideas out there that the fans have, but you know, we just have a process here and it's, it's a lot easier for us if we just keep it, 
maybe skip some great ideas that other people have, but we just focus on what we have and internal and we don't have to you know, worry about uh, risk. There's this old expression that you don't get into business with family and friends. Why did this company work with you and your three friends? You know, I think the, uh, the absolute clear line, I mean, there's really two reasons. One, it's, it's been just a, incredible people, right? Like they just can't say enough about my partners. Uh, we still all hang out all the time. Um, you know, we, we, keep our t- we have our time apart, but we do a lot of things together. And it's been, you know, seven, eight years now. A big thing on the business side is we all have our functions. And so the stepping on toes, you know, um, we just don't have that competition, right? Travis has the creative on lock, you know, like uh, John Loomis does the finance and he has HR, which is kind of a naturally, usually evolves out of finance in a small company. Jonathan Jawade runs retail and wholesale and he's the sales guy. I have the warehouse and logistics. I can do some contracts and, and a, a little bit of hodgepodge stuff. And now that we've been doing it long enough, we can kind of give feedback and, you know, probably more and more in other areas, but we just don't step on toes all the time. Cause I think that'd be so frustrating because probably nowadays when everyone's starting a business, everyone wants to run social media would be my guess or do the creative, right. You know, and it's like, you can't have everybody doing that. Uh, not everybody's great at it. And there's just too many kind of cooks in the kitchen, but you know, I've never gone and posted on our social media, nor will I ever. Right. So I don't, I don't care to, you know, like it doesn't matter to me. There's, we're not in it for the glory. We're in it for the team here. How many stores are you up to now? I know that I've been to the one by uh, the Giants Ballpark. I've been to the one in spring training multiple times. How many stores are you up to total? We have 11 total. We, uh, open, we have opened two during all of this COVID situation. We opened the Field of Dreams movie site, which is an incredible barn that we built on the movie site uh, to match the overall aesthetic. And it's just awesome. And then we opened in St. Louis the, this summer right across from the ballpark. What's your goal for continuing to, to, to build the brand and build uh, brick and mortar stores around the country? You know, brick and mortar, it's, it's tricky. Obviously, it, even without COVID, we were, all, we're trying to pace ourselves. Uh, originally, we were only going to be at iconic stadiums. We kind of reapproached that because there's only so many iconic stadiums and they only have so much retail around them. We want to be in places where there really are baseball fans that make sense. And we would preferably like to be near baseball, right? So we're outside of stadiums. Uh, or we have Cooperstown or spring training. And then last year we opened Irvine spectrum, which is our first kind of mall store. So not next to a stadium, but you know, that orange County area is just a travel ball kind of Mecca. So I, I think we're going to be pretty slow paced on stores from here on out. You know, COVID very much impacted that. We'll have to see what brick and mortar shopping kind of looks like, but um, we want it to be an experience for the customer. And so we don't want to cheapen it. We, so it, whatever it's got to be, it's got to be a, a space that we can make our own. We can add special features. Uh, the people who are coming there get it and, it and it's worthwhile for them. Yeah. I know that especially in spring training, it's like, I can't go to Arizona for spring training and not go to the baseballism store and see what's new. And just um, the word that you used experience that definitely resonated because just the, the feel of it, the, the spacing of it, the stuff that's on the walls, it, it truly is an experience and it's a, it's a compliment to you. Um, you know, what was, was that process fairly natural to come up with what that experience would feel like? Yeah. I mean, so you know, I can't speak to that perfectly because it's really that that's a, you know, Jonathan Jawade and Travis really uh, own that space. You know, Jonathan, um, all of our beautiful stores, he's behind the design and the layout. And then he works with Travis on the branding and the messaging, you know, you'll go in and you'll see we're famous for our quotes, you know, you'll go in, you'll the quotes will be built into the walls. So I would guess that, you know, it it is comes natural for them to be able to put that forward, but they're really the minds behind all of that. 
I got two more questions for you and then we'll wrap it up. First one is what's your best advice for someone who wants to start their own company, whether it's a lifestyle brand in general or whether it's something with sports, what, what's your best advice? I tell you what, I mean, I think we kind of what we talked about with the four of us, you know, you be in it for the good of the whole, right? Like uh, there's a lot of brands that kind of the, the founders put themselves out front and that's um, that might be really good, but there's a, that expires at some point, at some point you're not young and cool. And you know, what are you, what are you going to do? Other thing is just, it's just a grind, right? You know, we, you know, I left the army where I was gone for a year working 17 hour days. And there's, there's been a lot of times here where we work really, 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 really hard. I mean, that's, you just, you have to put in the time. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, it's not going to come easy, um, but it's worth it. My last question has nothing to do with baseballism. It has to do with baseball in Portland Whenever I hear about Portland as a potential expansion market for Major League Baseball, I'll admit, I say, I don't think so. I, I, I look at what uh, the attendance was at minor league games in Portland. I'd point to how the minor league baseball ballpark got turned into a soccer stadium and how great soccer is crushing it in Portland. Convince me that I'm wrong. Why could Portland be a, an expansion market for Major League Baseball? So I think uh, comparing minor league baseball to major league baseball is apples to, to oranges. I just don't think the average person, people go to minor league baseball for great beer deals. You know, I mean like overgeneralization, but that's a lot of the, the, the situation. And I just, I don't think that the failure there uh, really speaks to anything. What really in your point though, is how well soccer did is that people are in for professional sports in Portland. I mean, the Blazers, absolutely do well in attendance every year uh the fans are rabid you know you hear about people talking about how if you criticize the blazers and you're a sports person they come after you right like it's you know it's wild uh, how much people like it and like how you know i'm not super well versed in the mls numbers but i know there was a period of time where there was only so many profitable teams i believe and portland was one of them and if you go to a timbers match it's wild it's great so i think that it's the people here will support anything because portland you know, whether you're, if you're from here, you're like, I'm all Portland, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised Oregonian. If you move here, you want, you move here to embrace the culture and, and a team um, is, is a, a great, a great way to do that. I, you know, DC, I think is a great example for me too. Like when you have these transient places, which Portland is becoming, um, people grew up in New York or Chicago and they grew up going to baseball games. So they go to the new city that they're in. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, it's not like NFL where it's maybe kind of expensive to go once a week and you'd be like, well, I just can watch my team at home. Baseball, you just go, you have a hot dog, have a beer. The weather here is perfect. I, I mean, that's the thing. When you look at the stats of during the major league season, how much rain we get, we would be like better than like 95% of all teams in baseball. And then the food, it's a food scene and a beer scene. It would be great stadium food great beer however they lay out a stadium you're gonna be able to see the mount, a mountain behind it i mean it's gonna be it's just insane i i uh you know i don't know if they're gonna get a team i know there's good competition from from other places and they need to settle tampa and oakland and all of that but i think they come in they make a stadium that's not massive and i think that it does incredibly well you have nike here you have a ton of tech money I mean, honestly probably a lot of cannabis money i mean like these people are gonna buy season tickets um i don't think you're gonna have any problem all right I don't know if I'm 100% on the Portland bandwagon for an expansion team, but you definitely changed my mind. So I appreciate that. Um, all right, Kalen, this was fun. A lot of fun. Again, I'm a huge fan uh, of the brand and the story, and it was uh, wonderful finding out about your background and everything. I think it's just wonderful. And uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Once again, that was Kalen Boogman, and this is Life Around the Seams. Mm -hmm.